Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week, I have the one and only Alberto Cairo to join me on the show. Alberto, how are you, friend? Doing all right, John. Thank you for having me again. How's the weather? You can imagine, right? <laughs> Miami, <laughs> Florida. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's rough, right? Wonderful. It's yeah. Rough. yeah, rough. Really rough. <laughs> really rough sitting up by the pool, riding yeah. I, I, I don't know if you have seen that, but sometimes I, I, shot, I shoot photographs of... Uh, landscapes here in Miami, and I, I post them on Twitter, and I write the long and harsh winter. <laughs> yeah. You actually sent me one. I think there was one. We were having some nasty weather up here, and it's, you know it's been a pretty mild winter. And you just sent me like a nice note of a picture of you reading a book in front of your pool. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, this is why people hate academics. This yeah, is the reason, yeah. right? Yeah. Here. I was working though. I was working really hard. I know, I know, I know. But outside by yeah, the pool, outside. it's you know, yeah, not yeah. so bad. Yeah. Um, margarita time starts early down there. Yeah, so. of course, of course, of course. <laughs> um, well, thanks for coming on. So I wanted to chat with you because you are on your visual Trump retour. Mm -hmm. And in late January, you're up here in D.C. You gave a talk here at the Urban Institute. And the day before, you're up in Baltimore mm -hmm. at um, the Maryland Institute College of Art. You gave the Trump retalk. So you're going all over the place. And uh, you're now in New Zealand and coming back to North America soon. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what the tour is for people who haven't yet seen it, or unfortunately, you're not going to be in their town for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can, you know, just chat about it. Sure. So the Visual Trumpery Tour has, um, or talk, <clears throat> I prefer to call it the Visual Trumpery Talk. It's a series, series of lectures that I'm doing uh, all over the United States and also in, in other countries, as you said, New Zealand, and then Next, I'm going to Canada, then back to the U.S., to California. Later on during the summer, I'm doing a like a mini tour in Europe. I'm going to Norway, Finland, the U.K., Italy, and other places. Um, people, by the way, can see the, the following dates and places in the in the website of the talk, which is trumperytour.com. But anyway, the talk is not about politics. The title the title of the talk is actually a provocation to bring people in. So I, I usually joke during the talk that I, I selected the title in purpose with several goals in mind. Uh, the first one was to provoke people and to trigger them into thinking that the talk is about, again, politics, when it's actually a talk about graphics, right? How, how visualization lies and how we lie to ourselves. And this is perhaps the most important part of the talk, how we lie to ourselves using visualizations quite often, more often than not. But the original title of the talk was much more boring. It was Graphicacy, which is uh, visual literacy or graphical literacy. Uh, but uh, the joke that I make is that I usually, you know, I, I, I spoke to some friends who told me that if I title a talk Graphicacy, it would not attract as many people as if I select a title that is a little bit edgier. So, yeah, right, right. yeah so after, after the election, someone on my Twitter feed tweeted the, the meaning of the word trumpery, which is basically something that deceives, something that, I mean, in particular, something that deceives the eye. It's a very old word in English that comes from French. So I said, you know, this is perfect. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Perfect as a title. So, yeah, so that's what the talk is about. It's about how, how graphics lie or how we lie to ourselves with graphics, what we can do about it to avoid it, and so on. You make a couple of arguments, points in the in the talk. One of them is about how we as graph data consumers 
need to be careful about uh, about what we retweet or what we share or, or you know what we you know arguments that we make based on things that we see. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you view people's responsibility in this era of, of just quickly sharing things around the world? Sure. So today is easier than ever to distribute content among friends and families, right? So you see a news story uh, in, in on Twitter, or on Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. And if the title of that story and the charts or maps that that story includes speak to your own prejudices or to your own ideological positions, it is very it's quite likely that you will retweet it without thinking, right? Um, yep. I believe that this contributes to an informational environment that is getting worse and worse and worse by the day. And I am blaming all of us. I do that myself. So in the talk, actually, I present a couple of cases of of stories that I retweeted mindlessly, told myself that I should have spent a little bit more time verifying the claims of the stories, taking a closer look at the graphics, and even uh, verifying the origin of the data, which is something that I encourage people to do before we retweet anything on social media, anything that we see in the media, right? um, The primary sources usually are one of the one of the main problems in graphics. Right? A graphic may look beautiful, very well designed, but if the, if the data that it is depicting is not correct or it has not been gathered with you know the right standards for accuracy, etc., then the graphic is wrong, no matter how beautiful mm-hmm. it is or attractive it is, right? Right. Do you think that people will embrace that idea? And, and, and do you think there's, um, I don't know, do you think there's a, a, a level or a spectrum of when we should be more discerning of a graph before we share it versus ones that, you know, maybe they don't shout out a special outlier, or a big trend, but it's just interesting. But maybe it's not something that we have to dive into. It's like, you know, GDP growth across these like eight countries. Well, that's interesting. But, you know, something on, you know, guns or abortion yeah. or, you know, a hot topic. Those yeah. are the sort of things that maybe we should, our ears should perk up a little bit. Yeah. So, well, let, let me clarify, though, that the expectation of the talk is not that we will embrace the principles that I teach 100% of the time. It is completely unrealistic to expect that every person will verify the original source of every single graphic that we see every day, right? We cannot do that. But I right. believe that, let's say, 10% of the people who come to the talk start verifying the sources of 10% of the stories that they see every day, that's progress. That's likely fewer bad graphics and fewer bad data stories that will be shared in social media. The more people we convince of certain principles of verification, etc., and the more people will apply these principles, again, not 100% of the time, but only when they have you know, a couple of minutes to verify the source, et cetera, or to debunk a story that they believe that it is wrong and so on and so forth, that is still progress. Now, what kinds of stories we should keep an eye on or more or, or a closer eye on? Precisely those stories that we find more appealing for mm-hmm. ideological reasons. So if you're a liberal, for example, there's a, uh, an example that I show in the, in the talk a bit that, that speaks about how, how expensive healthcare in the United States is, right, in comparison to other countries. And I explain why I believe that that particular story is wrong. And the, 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 the reason it is wrong is the original source of the, of the data. But that's the kind of a story that I will retweet mindlessly myself because I do believe, I am convinced, that healthcare prices in the United States are, are absolutely insane. I'm European, mm-hmm. so and prices over there are much are much less expensive than they are over here, are much lower than they are here. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of story that I will retweet. Well, that's the kind of story that you should double check 
uh, the most because um, mm-hmm. it is very easy to debunk stories and, and, and a lot of fun, I would say, to debunk graphics that go against your ideological principles. It is much harder to do when those stories confirm your ideological principles, but those are the most important ones to pay attention at because those are the, the ones that are more likely to, to lie to you or to deceive you. I mean, it seems like if we are in our own bubbles now, you know, only the folks on the left read certain news organizations that are people sort of argue they're on the left and news organizations are on the right. And if you are only reading the news that agrees with your perspective, and so those are the ones that you're checking, it seems like there's possibility of actually fact checking those organizations that agree with you. Um, let me ask this question. What responsibility do journalists and news organizations have to enable this, this fact-checking, this checking of data and graphs? Well, I do believe that we have a huge responsibility. And I, I still consider myself a journalist in that sense. So I, I do believe that there are certain practices that we journalists need to apply systematically. Uh, the main and most basic one is that we should always link to primary sources, which is something that many people do already, but, but some people don't. Some organizations don't link to primary sources. Right. And I have examples that I, I sometimes don't show during the talks of news stories that were extremely dubious, and it was hard to find the original source of the data that they were using because they weren't linking to it. So finding it required Google searches, talking to people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it takes quite a long time to find the. So if a, if a news organization doesn't link to primary sources, my rule of thumb is don't trust that organization. Period. Don't trust it. Mm. That's the first thing. But we should go way beyond that. So we should go, for example, to, uh, I believe, move towards, for example, what organizations such as 538 or ProPublica or even the New York Times and the Washington Post to a less, uh, to a lesser extent are, are actually doing, which is that uh, to create repositories of data and, to, and, and also articles that explain the methodology that was used to generate the graphics and the data that are being used in, in stories. ProPublica does this really, really well. 538 also does it quite often. So they publish these a long story about, I don't know, guns or whatever, or healthcare or whatever. And that story contains tons of visualizations or uh, arguments based on data and whatever. These organizations will not just publish the story and the graphics. They will also publish a methodology page like scientists mm-hmm. do. So disclosing what it is that they did with the data, where they obtained the data, what kinds of manipulations or transformations they applied to the data, what were the assumptions behind the, the story that they did, and so on and so forth. So this is an exercise of, of transparency. I must say that I don't think that more than perhaps 1% or 5% of readers will ever take a look at that methodology. But that 1% or 5% of readers are actually the ones who can help us become better journalists down the road. Mm-hmm. Because those are the most critical readers, the readers who can give constructive criticism, which is something that, that we in journalism really need, I believe. And again, I put myself in this group, right? We journalists are experts on nothing. So we need to collaborate with people who know much mm-hmm. more than we do about the topics that we cover. I think you're right on. It's an interesting thing about data and journalism that a lot of data journalists or whatever you want to call them, people, journalists who are working with data are in some ways doing more sort of academic research, and yet they're not held to the same standards as researchers are. You know, a formal peer review, uh, and like you said, putting the data out, uh, well, you know, makes yeah. it available, right? So, yeah, it needs to be a much more, uh, we could call it peer review, but we should not confuse it with academic peer review. Because right. academic right. peer review, it's, 
you know, it takes much longer, and we uh, right. we need to be realistic. We don't have time for that. Right? Journalists need to publish. That that's the reality, right? So I'm not advocating right. that a journalist should for an, a journalist taking months to publish a story. That's that's not realistic. But I am advocating for a little bit more of peer review, right? So you publish mm-hmm. your data out, you publish your story, you open yourself to yourself to constructive criticism from from experts who can take a look at that data and say, you know, this assumption over here is not quite right, or perhaps you should, you should have put a little bit more nuance in this story over here, or perhaps in the case of visualization, I don't know, you should have shown you know, your data at a, at a more granular level of detail, or you should, you should have included the confidence intervals or whatever, right? That kind of criticism, right. I, I find it extremely valuable when it comes from experts. And I speak based on my own on my own experience. So I, I give every book that I, that I write, for example, the, the, the most recent one is The Truthful Art. While, while I'm writing it, I, I'm, I, I let several friends of mine read it, um, in order to spot mistakes or things that could be better explained, etc., and the friends that who I usually contact are people who work in data science or statistics or computer science or whatever, people who know much more than I do about about things that I sometimes need to write about in the books that I write. Right now, we've been talking so far about visuals, about graphs that may be misleading. I think we've seen the tone we've sort of taken so far is they're misleading for a purpose or for a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not always misleading because they have a, you know, some sort of evil, uh, you know, objective. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the visual itself is just misleading. Or, 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 um, or the, yeah, but, but it, and, and it happens usually not because the graphic is badly constructed. It happens mm-hmm. because of things that happen inside your brain that are enabled by the graphic. Where are you going in that direction? Well, so I think there are two branches of this. I think the, the example that I had in my head was the example that you've written about a lot, which is on the hurricanes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it, I guess it, it lines up with what you're what you're saying. But you know, you have this example about how Noah shows the the cone for for hurricane projections, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're not drawing that graph to you know lead you astray. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to bias the data, but the way the graphic is made up actually might lead you to come to the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's an example of a graphic that is not built for the audience who is seeing it. And that this is one of the critical things in, in visualization, which is that rules apply always in a particular context. Not always, but often apply in a particular context. There are certain rules that I believe that are quite universal, but most of them are not. Most of them depend on the on the audience, etc. So what what you're talking about is, is is usually called the cone of uncertainty. So whenever a hurricanes are represented visually, hurricane forecasts, scientists use a cone of increasing size to represent a range, basically a range of possible paths that the center of the hurricane could take. So you need to envision that as, a, as, a, as an expanding cone, basically, right? being very narrow where, where the hurricane is right now and being much wider for five, five days in the future, right? So it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. So what that represents is a range of possible paths. The hurricane could move, the center of the hurricane could move anywhere within the boundaries of that cone. But some people don't read it that way, right? That's how a scientist reads it. Right? Yeah. Scientists understand that that represents a, like thousands of possible lines inside that cone. But some people who are not scientists, when they see that, they believe that that's the area that is going to be affected by the hurricane. They interpret it as the area that is going to be impacted by the hurricane. And moreover, even scientists, and this is part of the reason I say that the, the graphic was not well built, uh, many scientists believe that that represents a 95% probability 
So that means that 95% of the time, the center of the hurricane will be within the boundaries of that cone of uncertainty. And only 5% of the time, uh, we could get an outlier and then the hurricane could go outside the cone of uncertainty. But in reality, the number that is often not disclosed by anybody is that the actual number is 66 or 67%. That means that two out of three of times, the hurricane will be inside the cone, but one out of three, 33% of the time, the hurricane could go outside the boundaries of the cone of uncertainty. So uh, NOAA, the National Hurricane Center, several designers, etc., are are trying to push other kinds of graphics uh, to depict a, a hurricane a forecasts because they are very aware of the shortcomings of this graphic. A graphic that was originally created to be read by scientists is being used by news media, right? So it's a completely different audience. Scientists can understand it, sort of, but the general public can't. <laughs> so uh, scientists are trying to push, for example, what, what we could call an, a spaghetti graphic that shows you tons of possible lines, right? Each one of them representing a possible model, a possible path of the hurricane. But they have been so far unsuccessful beyond newspapers. Newspapers have begun adopting these other methods of depicting hurricane forecasts. But they have, these scientists have been unsuccessful at pushing these kinds of maps on TV. Why? I believe, and this is just a conjecture, that TV stations still use the old cone of uncertainty map because it looks so clear. And it looks yeah. you know, very clear cut, very easy to understand, or although that is misleading, it looks very easy to understand, but it is not easy to understand. And TV journalists, I speak based on, on my own experience, TV journalists get this map wrong. I have seen people you know, talking about, about this map on TV, on TV casts, getting everything wrong about that map and explaining it wrong. Uh, so that is dangerous, obviously. So yeah. I would say, just to, to finish with this question, so that's an example of a graphic that misleads for two reasons. First of all, because it is not well-built, right? that's the first thing, and scientists are very aware of this, right? we could not blame them, they are, they are aware of this. And also because it is a graphic that is being shown to the wrong audience, audience who doesn't have the necessary prior knowledge to read that kind of graphic well. But there are other kinds of graphics that lie, for, even if they are perfectly built, Right, that's another part of the talk. Mm -hmm. Let me ask one more question. How many of these talks have you given so far? Oh, I don't know. I would I, I would need to count, but I would say around <laughs> twenty already or something. So, have you heard a general theme of questions or people pushing back? Has um, so anything popped up where you're like, oh yeah, I've heard this like five times now? Uh, no, not really. I, I mean, no. people because because of repetition. You mean? People are telling yeah. several. No, like, no, no, because of, because of you know they hear one part of the you know you're making an argument. They hear one part of the argument. They say, well. Yes, but maybe not in this particular case. No, not really. I mean, I have I have gotten uh, quite a lot of feedback uh, from people who have attended the talk. The reaction is usually quite positive, mm -hmm. but I have gotten mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of feedback to uh, perhaps tweak an example or explaining a little bit clearer, or I don't know that kind of very constructive and very positive feedback that oh. that I appreciate and welcome because every iteration of yeah. it is a little bit better than the past one uh, to the previous one thanks to to this kind of feedback no negative feedback at all um i got an email once from a person who is quite conservative saying that at uh, the beginning of the talk i said that the talk is nonpartisan and it really is and complaining that the balance <laughs> be, the balance between right and left uh, when choosing the examples was not a perfect 50-50 split like 50% oh. liberal 50% conservative my reply to him was that doing a 50-50 split will not be true to reality because sadly, right now, much of the, of the visual bullshit that we see 
is coming from the far right in particular. So we cannot avoid that. That I mean, there are certainly examples that come from liberal media, and I try to highlight them, and I have two or three of them in the talk. My, but most of most of the ones I have in my collection come from far right sources. Yeah, and unfortunately, we keep seeing more and more of these. So you have multiple goals in this talk, and one of the goals is to open people's eyes to these to these different visualizations, these different tricks, more or less. Have you received, in terms of positive feedback, have you found that people are taking some of your recommendations to heart? Are they going out and looking at the data? Are they sending you things that they find that, you know, raises red flags for them? I, I do get email sometimes from people sending me yeah. sending me examples. Uh, I remember right now someone who attended the lecture in Luxembourg is sending me an example from Luxembourg in particular of a graphic that was not yeah. constructed. Also another one in California. So yeah, people email, and I also get feedback on the on the fly and in the very place of the talk right after. So I remember really well, for example, the talk in in Redlands in California that was very well attended by a lot of retirees. So a lot of people who are retired attended the talk for some reason, and I had like forty or fifty people, uh, elderly people in the in the room. I was a little bit concerned because I said, well, perhaps they will be a little bit bored about the you know a graphic about graphics or something about charts yeah. of visualization. Quite the contrary, they was they were super involved. You know, their eyes were wide open. And uh, after the talk, I got this very nice lady come to me uh, to thank me to for for explaining how to read a scatter plot. Because she had huh. she had never seen a scatter plot, or she has seen she had seen scatter plots, but she she had never understood how to read them. So right. that's right. that's exactly what the talk is about, right? It's about increasing yeah. the level yeah. of efficacy of people. I say that the talk is not for experts. I mean, it, it can be for experts because what I try to do in the talk is also to provide a set of tools that experts can use to explain quite complex statistical and visualization principles to the general public. So if you need to explain all these principles to your friend who is not a statistician or a data journalist or whatever, how would I do it? What kinds of, of fun examples you could use? Here are the examples, and I show them in the talk. Feel free to use them from this point on or repurpose them. But the other purpose of the talk right. is also address general people, like people who don't have any sort of expertise and perhaps who are confused sometimes by the kinds of visualizations that they see in the media. So I explain how to read them. I explain how to read some of them, among them the scatter plot. Okay, so you've done 20 or so. Uh, where, are you, uh, where are you headed next? So if I'm not wrong, the next one is going to be Quebec City in Canada. Then I'm going to California. I'm taking a look at the schedule now. California, Los Gatos. I'm going to Finland in May, uh, London and Wales. That will be in June. Norway in June, Italy in June. Then Switzerland at the end of June. And then in the fall probably going to visit uh, North Carolina, three or four cities in North mm -hmm. Carolina. I will go to Nashville, Nashville Santa Clara University in California. Yeah, I have like a, like 10 or 15 more places. You're going to need like Atlanta. a new passport. Get all those, yeah, uh, with all those places, those. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm still receiving requests from people asking to, Great. yeah, to, so that it, it, and it's a fun talk. I really enjoy doing it. Uh, and I, I enjoy the fact that people seem to be, taking something useful from it. So I will probably yeah. keep doing it uh, from this point on. Yeah. I, I, and I, I, I keep tweaking it every time that I deliver it. I include more examples and I withdraw other examples. Right. So yeah, it's fun. Yeah. 
That's great. I'll link to the whole site so folks can make sure that they attend the talk when you're in their city and they can send you a note to get you to their city. And if you can't get to their city, there are, I think now, a variety of recordings of the talk here and there. I know Urban has one and I think there's a couple others out there. So people should check those out and I'll throw some links up. So, um, Alberto, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for uh, coming to Urban and do the talk. And um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this week's episode. You have comments, you have questions, you have suggestions. Please drop me a link on the website or on Twitter. So until next time, this has been the Policy Biz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.